This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Confident in telling you that we are tagged out, because I just smoked that deer. Nice shot. It's been really tough hunting, to be honest with you. You're listening to the Scree Country Podcast. Mike, it's been a while since we talked. Um, as everyone's probably heard, and we, we actually had Rusty, my outfitter. I'm just getting back from my elk hunt, and we kind of had pre-recorded a lot of stuff leading up to now. But now we're in October, and uh, we're going to be talking whitetail deer hunting. And our guest is Mr. Warren Womack. Mr. Warren, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Appreciate y'all having me on here. So if you've, uh, before we jump off into that conversation, Mike, I'm going to share a little bit about my elk hunt with you. Uh, kind of a follow-up to a couple podcasts ago where Mr. Rusty Farnsworth was our guest, and I, I just want to follow up on some of that. I know you and I haven't even had a chance to really discuss my hunt in depth, but uh wanted to, first of all, kind of catch up with you, see, uh, have you been on any hunts, Mike? What's going on in in your your world right now yeah you bet so yeah it's it does seem like it's been a while since our last podcast i know you've been on your elk hunt in utah i've actually been in colorado my son had a high country um rifle tag and so we we were on that hunt and um really really tough hunt um in some spectacular country and uh we we ended up pulling out a really nice buck, which was which was really cool, <clears throat> kind of a cool experience. I think it teaches you a lot about the principle of perseverance, man. And and you know if 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 you if you if I've learned anything in hunting, I think it's the principle of perseverance. You know that that was a really mental mentally and physically tough hunt. Um, it was just we were absolutely exhausted. You know every day. You know, I just don't sleep really well in the mountains. I don't know when I'm away from my home, I just don't sleep well. And so, you know, when you're when you're not sleeping really good and you're not eating good hearty meals, 
um, it starts to wear on you physically and mentally. But anyway, we, we hung in there, we persevered and my, my son was able to take a really nice, um, buck on actually the evening of opening day. But we, we actually went into the back country several days early to hopefully in hopes of finding a big buck to hunt on opening day. And, and, uh, that's a discussion for, for another time, but yeah, we, we persevered and were able to get him a nice buck. Yeah, it was a really nice buck. If people haven't seen it, we've shared it on Scree's social media multiple times over. You can take a look at that. Um, and I, I guess I mentioned kind of following up a little bit about what I just did, which is, I guess, really just a testament to what you just said, because if you've been listening to our podcast, we had Rusty Farnsworth from Farnsworth Outfitting on a couple of weeks ago um, to talk about his backcountry adventures and hunts, and I did one of those with him September the 15th, 16th uh, time frame, and i am been home a couple of weeks and had time to reflect, and I didn't kill an elk, but um, I went through the highs and lows, and I I understand very personally what you were just talking about, how uh, the perseverance that's necessary. So, you know, just in recap of how that was, the high you went to mountains where we went hunting is spectacular. As far as experiencing backcountry that, you, you know, that's a protected wilderness area. So the only way you get there is to walk or ride a horse. We did the horseback. We went 14 miles in up the Uinta River Gorge and into a, a basin back in there. And uh, it was a terrifying experience to ride a horse on a mountain goat trail, <laughs> switch back and up and down the mountains. Uh, that was that was terrifying for a for a, and I I grew up in the south. I I grew up riding horses to some extent, but never like that. Um, and then you know just like you said the. The being in the back country, sleeping in a tent, uh, we did have pretty good food. Like you mentioned, the hearty meals. I guess in that situation um, where we packed in that way, they packed in some pretty good food. But it was cold and it rained a lot while we were up there, and uh, it was it was it was diff- it was tough hunting. But I'm glad I did it. I was uh, I was worn out, and I was at my wits end with a lot of it right thereafter. But looking back on it, I'm glad I did it because I experienced and saw some things up there that I know that not very many humans even get to see because we were so far back and we hiked and we hunted so hard. And um, that was amazing. So, Mr. Warren, I know you've told – you have how many times have you been out west hunting? One time. I think you told me a story about loading up a Bronco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, y'all went to Colorado? Yeah, it was uh, 1975 three of us i had no 74 bronco and everything had a rack on it and on the back we had a, a metal box a sheet metal box my neighbor he was a sheet metal man he worked as a sheet metal man he made me a box fit in the receiver and everything and uh one of the guys uh floyd smith he he had a death in his family his stepdad was raised him from a baby he died right before we left so charles lee buller i don't know if you know charles lee buller you're mm-hmm. familiar with him Yes, sir. Uh, anyway, we we got together my Bronco and loaded it all up just to stay two weeks. We're going elk hunt a week and, and mule deer hunt a week, and loaded it all up and uh, 
took off and, and Floyd, he stayed, made the funeral and got on a plane. We picked him up in Denver. And then we went to the, we hunted two areas. We hunted the uh, Delta National Forest and the Uncompadre National Forest. And I, I, I forget which one we hunted elk and which one we hunted deer. It's been 75 is a long time ago, you know. But we made the trip up there in that Bronco with uh, co-op mud grips. You know how them co-op mud grips, how they sing and holler when you're riding down the road. And people really never seen anything up there in Colorado look like that. So that, that drew some attention. But anyway, it was our first trip, and what, what the deal was, their license was going to take a $100 jump. The mule deer license for non-resident was $25, and the elk tag was $30, and it was going to go to 125 and 135 the next year. So, you know, that was a lot of money back then. And uh, so we decided we are going to make the trip. We got up there, but we knew some guys from Louisiana that had been up there for about 15 years in a row. And... uh we kind of followed their lead and met up with them up there, and then they, they pointed out an area to go in and, and look for some elk. Well, we went one evening basically scouting. This could be a long story, so all right. I brought you on here to tell stories because I think you're great at it. So. But anyway, uh, they they showed us a, a, a area to go look for uh, elk at. We got on the side of a mountain. There's the three of us, and we was looking across this drawing and, and deep ravine and other thing to this other side of the mountain. And uh, we spotted the elk. I saw about 35 that evening. We kind of spread out, and we found the elk. It was over there and other thing. So we went back, and our, our package left a lot to be desired. It really was. We didn't have all that fancy stuff. And I had an 8 by 10 Coleman tent with the stakes, six-foot stakes and all that. And we had some kind of makeshift backpacks and stuff and our, our food was, we had a, a quart jar of peanut butter. You know, <laughs> it, it was real strange for a couple of flatlanders up there. Yeah. But anyway, we, we fell off side that mountain, went down there, and we thought we were just going to go down the mountain and go up the other side. But we got there, and they had a ravine straight down. We had to cross that thing, got down in there, and actually spent the night down in that ravine, set up our tent. We found a log on the side, the other side of the slope there, where we could climb up that log and then get a start out of the ravine to get on up the mountain where the depth where we seen the elk at. And uh actually spent the night down that ravine, not thinking if they could have a rain up above it'd be a flash flood and drown us all. You know, we were pretty <laughs> ignorant uh, out of our environment, natural environment. But uh, anyway we, we spotted some elk and I got on the elk and and of course I was you know, I was young then and I just wanted to shoot something. So I shot a cow elk at that evening, Mr. Spike shot a cow, and it ran on off, and it was late in the evening, so we went back to camp. Next day, we got up and started looking for it, found some blood, and we was tracking the blood on the elk, and we run into a, a hunter, an out-of-state hunter, another out-of-state hunter, and he told us we was trespassing. And we didn't know. We were just going by what the guy that's been there for 18 years had told us it was government land. So anyway, we... uh. We talked to this guy, and he said, yeah, he'd paid $300 to hunt with a guy and an outfitter on private land. And and uh, actually, it, it wasn't private. It was national forest land. They, that guy was using easy access to get into this hard national forest property and, and making money, you know, as a guide saying it was his property or he had a lease on it or whatever, but it wasn't. But anyway... He, the the guy he was just a hunter he just paid that money he was just kind of giving us a warning that the guy trespassed anybody he caught on there, 
So my two buddies, they got a little nervous, but I was wanting to find the elk. So they backed out and went back down, packed up, to leave. And I looked for the elk. And it just, it, I, I had good blood till I got up in the real rocky part of the up, upper part of the gear, and, and it just blood started getting hard to find. I just backed out. But I, then we went to San Juan National Forest. That, that was uncompadre. And then we went to San Juan, and I, I killed a mule deer. The funny part about the mule deer I shot, I climbed 35 foot up in a tree to hang my stand on the side of the mountain. And if I looked six foot behind me, I was about eight foot off the ground. If I looked the other way, I was probably 70, 80 foot <laughs> off the ground. And just just my luck, a couple of does come in, I shot a doe, and she run down the mountainside and fell dead about 100 yards from the road where my Bronco was parked. So. But uh, it was a great, great trip. I, I had a lot of fun out there. It, another thing, I had trained so hard to get ready for that trip. I was working on a job, had a tower, and, and I was running that tower three times a day, taking two steps at a time, going up the top just to get in condition. I was working out with weights. I was running at the house. thought I was in tip-top shape. We got up there in that high elevation in Colorado, and I got my tent out, throw it on the ground, rolled around, run on the other side, and I couldn't have no breath. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get my breath. And I said, what's going on here? Yeah. But uh, anyhow, that was our little Colorado trip. It, it's, Mike, I, I guess – you know, I've been hearing stories from obviously you guys about Western hunting and and friends and people back home like Mister Warren, and I never experienced it until until this. And so, I guess just to kind of recap that from my perspective is, I'll say this, Rusty, uh, those guys work really hard, and that is some beautiful country. And there is no doubt in my mind that. If you're there on the right day, there's a lot of elk in that country. The sign, um, I've hunted a lot of different animals, and I consider myself at least, you know, uh, capable as of just a woodsman and an outdoorsman. And th- I-, I can say without even experiencing elk hunting uh, personally that just my woodsmanship tells me there's no way there's that much sign of any kind of animal in one area and it not have a lot of them because there was elk sign everywhere and we did hear plenty of elk bugling it was just very sporadic they weren't real responsive and the weather uh, like i said it rained three of the five days that we were in there so the weather kept changing and the wind kept changing and it seemed like every time we would get in the right spot the wind would shift and then the elk would go silent you know um and we're archery hunting too so and so that was difficult, but I've been hearing these stories and like the one Mr. Warren just shared and the ones I've heard from you guys, Mike, for all these years, and I got to experience it. Um, Rusty, uh, just kind of to follow up to our conversation with him on his podcast, Rusty, those guys worked incredibly hard. I think they're a little bit crazy, to be quite honest with you, to do what that they to do what they do week after week. It's a little bit nuts, but uh, I'm glad I did it. So I, I'm excited, and I was super excited for uh, for Josh to see you guys with that 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 nice buck that y'all got out from your hunt. So that was awesome. Yeah, it was it was a good time, and you know, uh, elk don't make it easy on anybody, man. I mean, you you got to be just a little bit crazy to to be an elk hunter. I mean, it's it's just so like Mr. Warren mentioned, it's just so physically demanding and. You know, they, they say if you're going to come to the West and you're going to hunt elk, um, you need to be in what they call sheep shape, and which is basically the best shape of your life. They say get in the best shape of your life, and once you're there, get in even better shape. I mean, it's it's 
physically grueling. Elk live in the nastiest, steepest, most rugged country. They're very hardy animals. Um, I mean, those things will, those things won't come off the mountain sometimes until they're in belly deep snow. You know, they'll be pawing at the ground and, you know, to get some forage and, and uh, they're, and they're tough animals, man. You, you got to hit them and you got to hit them hard and hit them good. Cause um, you know, they, they can, they can take some lead and keep going. I mean, I remember a time years ago, I was on it. Actually, it was just a, we had some antlerless elk tags and I remember shooting a cow elk when I was just a young buck, right. You know, double long, both lungs. And that thing went straight uphill and bedded and was, was actually still alive when I, I found it bedded and was able to, to um, dispatch it. But man, they're just, they're tough. They're tough animals, man. And you, you honestly, I'm uh, Locke, obviously you, you have a newfound appreciation for those animals and, and the, the, the country and the mountains that they live in, Mr. Warren, obviously you've, you've had your experience and I don't know. They, they say when you, they say that you go elk hunting the first time for fun. The second time you goes for revenge. <laughs> so <laughs> when I shot that uh, cow elk and other things, Charles Lee, he, he hunted a lot of places, Alaska and Canada and, out west a lot and everything. And he, he said, you shot a, a cow? And I said, yeah, man, I'm really happy about it and everything. And he said, you're fixing to work harder than you ever worked in your life. Because we was on that one side of that mountain. We had to come down it, drop off in a ravine, and climb out of the ravine and go up the other side. I, I didn't think anything about that, you know. I, I just, I was young and green and, and uh, just wanted to shoot anything I could. But he said, you're fixing to work harder than you ever worked in your life. He said, for a cow <laughs> i said well that's what i did I, I, i'll say this we were back then and when we went where we went we took our horses and went into one basin and there was another group of hunters and they went into another basin and towards the end of of the hunt we got word that one of the guys in the other camp like on the fourth or fifth day had shot and missed a cow and i thought to myself <laughs> what i've been doing for the last five days that cow needs to walk up here in this camp yard before I shoot at it. <laughs> and even yeah. then, I may not shoot at it. Uh, I was like, there's no way. Because we were walking, we were leaving our camp and going, you know, straight up, 2,000 feet. Yeah. And and making a 10-mile loop every day. And usually, it was, of course, at the backside of the loop that we found the elk, always. Mm-hmm. And I thought, we were back there several times, and I thought, it's going to have to be a pretty nice elk for me to shoot it back here because I just yeah. no elevators or escalators around there at all. No, <laughs> and and no and no roads or trails to get back in there. That's it's right. just packing them out. And honestly, even we had a we had a mule team and horses, and there were some places that we were on elk, and I thought we can't even get a mule back here. You know, we're we're yeah. two miles from anywhere we can even yeah. get a mule to help. So it was a it was an amazing experience. Um, I wanted to recap it because we had Rusty on and Josh was. You guys had a successful backcountry hunt during this time period, Mike, and we're going to talk. Well, and, Go ahead. And I was just going to say, you know, with that, like just just with with elk, they're they're so much different than whitetail and mule deer in that, um, you know, like a mule deer, a mule deer will have a general area. Okay. Yeah. He he's kind of got an area, and, and and generally speaking, that area for most mule deer is is actually pretty small. They might range a mile, maybe two, you know, 
maybe if they get pressure in one basin or one drainage, they might pop open to another. But generally speaking, they'll they'll stick in a you know one to two mile radius, and 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 I I kind of suspect that until the rut kicks in, you know that that whitetail are very similar in that respect. But elk aren't that way. I mean, we have elk trophy elk documented here in Utah where there, there have been bull elk that have been spotted on one end of a mountain range and literally the next day, 50 miles away, huh. same bull. I mean, them, them, them daggum things will pick up and, and they're just nomadic, man. They're no, there's no rhyme or reason for it. They just, they'll pick up and push a herd of 20 cows or follow a herd of 20 cows 50 miles overnight. Like they just, they just go, you know, and you, you can be in a basin that's just chuck full elk one day and go in there the next day and it's void. Like them elk have left. They're gone. It's they're you know, so it's, I think that's yeah. what makes it even more difficult to hunt them. But, you know, I, you know, as we kind of transition into whitetail, I mean, um, I know, you know, my, my experience is still pretty limited. I'm fixing to go on my, my third whitetail hunt to Canada this here in a few weeks and super excited. I'm starting to learn a thing or two about whitetail, but um, would you say whitetail are, are very similar in that respect to mule deer that they have kind of a core area that they stay in? I'm going to give you my answer and then I'm going to let Mr. Warren give you his cause he's, he's got a lot more uh, experience than I do. I think that I, in my experience and, and most of it is in the South or in the Midwest, for the most part, I do think that they have that core area like that, and they and they don't roam it outside of it much outside of the rut. Now, I will say this. I think that deer herd size and geography changes that a little bit. And, and I, well, here's what I mean. I think there are some places where the amount of deer per square acre – in an area and the amount of open terrain versus hilly terrain versus thick terrain changes that size and maybe that's an obvious thing that's the same with mule deer but i've hunted some areas where a a mature buck or a a, you know primary group of does and yearlings or whatever whatever even your young bucks your bachelor groups early season their core area can be very small and i've hunted other places where it seems like it's a lot larger so i I think it because whitetail live in so much more diverse uh, terrain, diverse geography across the United States. I think that the core principle of what you're saying is true, but I think that somebody listening to us um, in one part of the country may be experiencing that in a in a one to two mile kind of radius, where someone. Um, in another part of the country, maybe being like, "Well, that's not right. I don't have deer move even quite even nearly that far," you know. So I think that's the what. What do you think? What do you think, Mister Warren? You know, it's really hard to say, but I think they have a home range that they they have different core areas established in different parts at home range and at different times of the season and the year and everything. They might be more comfortable in in the area, say uh, a mile one time of the year than they would be another place another time of the year it's like a home range with different core areas and it depends on the time of the year and what's available that they need or want you know what i think mike is one of the things that's really notable in in 
in the way you segued here, which I thought was really good, by the way. Um, out west with elk and mule deer, most and and this is most whitetail country. We don't have the visibility that you guys have to watch these animals from afar, and and really track. Like like you said, you can kind of. Um, I know a lot of the, a lot of your western hunting. You can kind of watch deer from afar or elk or whatever with your spotting scopes and stuff like that, and, and kind of follow them a little bit better. That doesn't mean that they're just always easy to find. That's not what I mean. But like, if you come here to my home, and Mister Warren knows this, and he lives across the street, there's a herd of deer that live right here around our houses. But there's no way for for he and I to keep tabs on them outside of like trail cameras or encounters that we have hunting and the truth of it is if he or i either one step off of in the woods around either of our homes right here the deer know we're there before they do and they're not gonna let us know so we don't really know how they're moving outside of um the way we document and keep tabs with what we experience as hunters in the woods and nowadays with trail cameras and stuff like that so i think it's a complicated answer to your question i think they are a lot more like mule deer they're definitely not like elk i don't I don't, I mean, you agree. They're no, not yeah, nomadic. Definitely. No, no, not at all. They're not nomadic at all. Now, you know, somebody's going to say, oh, my buddy has a story where they killed a deer 20 miles down the road. And they know, I mean, not, there's exceptions to everything. You know, that deer took off on a walkabout for some reason. But generally speaking, they're not. But I think that's one of the big things is a big mature, let's just talk about a big mature buck from just the standpoint that that big mature buck is notable. It's easy. He, he's got the biggest horns. He's got something. We can keep up with that deer, right? Kind of same thing, talking about a trophy bull. Well, you guys, that bull's being spotted in a meadow out west somewhere regularly, and they're following him. And then they spot him again in a meadow or on a hillside way off on the other side of the mountain range. It's easy. Um, that's that's kind of, you can, he's the trophy bull. He's got a certain particular characteristic. It's easy to follow that. Down here, that big buck that lives back here behind my house, he could decide to go on a 10-mile walk and nobody ever see him because he'd never get out of a thicket that you can see 20 yards in one direction or the other. Nobody ever have a, have a clue that he left. So, there, you know, if we don't pick him up on a trail camera or, or somebody doesn't in some way able to, to see that and document that, um, we don't know what they do other than our perception of what they're doing based off of how we go in and out of the woods and like i said the trail camera thing is a, is is a you know in the grand scheme of of whitetail deer hunting as a culture is a new thing you know uh and so that's that's my take on that but i wanted to i wanted to segue something go say go ahead and say what you were going to say there mike well I, I was just gonna say i i mean yeah i mean it sounds like it sounds like they're very similar to mule deer i mean like in my experience um with mule deer like i i honestly think it's it's a for most mule deer again there there's always exceptions i mean out here on the arizona strip which is a premium trophy unit i mean they kill some of the, the biggest mule deer on the planet um right in my backyard in, in northern arizona that's that strip of ground between the north rim of the grand canyon and the utah border but <clears throat> It, it's based on water. So you guys don't have that issue where you, where you guys in Louisiana, water's not an issue, but in, in this desert, water is an issue. And oftentimes you got these cattle trick tanks is what they call them. 
Um, and so you'll have deer. It's kind of cool. They can document through trail, trail cameras. They can see a deer. Okay. He's on a, he's on a, a water tank and then they, they document the same buck and usually it's bucks. It's hard to track those, but you know, then they can track that same buck that's 20 miles away and they, they will because of, um, because of water and because of feed, they'll, they'll travel, but that's an exception, man. I, I honestly think that mule deer, um, have a, I mean, until the rut kicks in, cause we know when they start chasing the ladies, then all bets are off. I think their, their range extends. Yeah. Um, once they start to, to rut and chase the ladies, but by and large, it, I mean, I, I feel like with mule deer, it's about a, just a, like I said, a couple mile range tops. And it might even be less than that for, for some deer. And and just what little experience I have whitetail hunting, it seems like they the whitetails have very a very similar range, you know. Yeah. But typically where whitetail live, I mean, they've got an adequate amount of food and water and cover. I mean, those are the three, kind of the three things um, that I always look at when I'm scouting new country. But Yeah, I think that um... – when you're talking about the older class of deer in your herd, buck or doe, either one, I think the range shrinks, and I think they get a lot better at using it. And like I said, for us down here, and I and I know it can with with uh, with anything. I mean, they obviously they spend every day of their life trying to stay alive and avoid predation, both mule deer and whitetail, and. So they're really good at it. Down here, we're hunting deer that live in, you know, very thick country that we can't penetrate except uh, try to do it strategically when we hunt and and maybe with the use of trail cameras. One of the things I wanted to have Mr. Warren talk about a little bit as as a guest on this episode, one of the things that he's done with his hunting career that is, I don't know how unique it is. I know it's unique. Um, he has got a, he has, he has really spent a lot of time documenting his experiences, not only with, with harvesting deer and and all that, but, but with, um, you know, we're talking about that and you asked that question and I'm, you know, that was kind of my answer is the only way we really know this and how it changes from area to area is what we experience in the woods. Well, Mr. Warren has done about as in-depth, um, of a level of documenting his experience in the woods as a deer hunter to be able to to really you know do what we're talking about i want to i want to get you to share some of that with us and mike has never heard any of this so um it, it it's very interesting um the level of detail that he's gone to to document his experience in the woods and uh for both from your you know, I, I want you to talk a little bit about how you got got started with videoing and using video to document. But as as importantly as that, I, I also you know want to talk about the, the physical notebook documentation of your hunts and and how what level of detail you went into so that you could review those journals and and know what happened on October the 11th when you hunted this area back two years ago or whatever. Well, it's uh, it's became really detailed. It, it wasn't that detailed when I first started, but when I first started deer hunting, I was 24 years old. We did. I was a small game hunter since I was seven, but 
we didn't have any deer anywhere near our area back then. You know, I, I was born in '44. I'm eighty. I'm seventy-eight years old right now. So you know, I'm, it was twenty-four years old before I was could put myself where they had any deer at all. And it was all it was a self-learning deal. They didn't have any education for bow hunters back then at all. I mean, maybe in the three outdoor magazines they had outdoor life, sports of field, and field and stream. You might once a year they'd have an article on bow hunting or something like that. But uh, it was just it was like I looked at it as a uh, like a apprenticeship program, taking four years to learn how to put deer underneath me on a consistent basis. And my uncle, he recognized, which is my mother's baby brother, but it's only 11 years difference in our age. And he recognized real early that I, how detailed I was getting into this stuff and how much I put into deer hunting, trying to put deer under me. And he, he encouraged me to keep records, to, to keep a diary, or a journal, and write numbers down and, and facts down and, and take pictures, and that was before video back then, too. And uh, so I, I took his word for it, and I started, I started off real slow first. I would just I'd, I'd write down my kills. And I'd, I'd write the time, the number, like number first kill was a gun kill. Say the tenth kill was my fifth bow kill or whatever. I'd have a number of the kill and then what number it was for a bow or a gun kill. I write down the the date, the time, the day, the date, the time. Uh, uh, what I killed, whether it's a eight point or a doe or a spike or whatever. I'd write all that down and then I would uh, have the uh, time of the shot, the uh, what I was shooting at. How far the shot was, how far the travel was, and where I was hunting at. That was my basic deal. And, uh, and I, I have all that for 387 deer. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway. Yeah, that, that's, that's impressive. So, so you, uh, walk us back. When, what year did you start that diary? And I, I assume that diary continues today. What? 1968. What, 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 how, I do the math. What did you say, 27 years? No, it was 1968, uh, which would be about 56 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he was – Not many, yeah, a, not, not many uh, uh, people kept that kind of a journal for that long. So that's I can't. That's I can't pretty, I'm sorry. I can't quote all the numbers on it because I didn't bring my book. I got like a master copy of my records. And then I, my, uh, my diary or my journal consists of – Writing, stats, pictures, video footage. And and uh, I got a lot of stats on different things. But that first thing was just a guide that I that I made for, to register the kills. And then for every deer I ever killed, and turkey, I have a complete story wrote about it, just like you would read it in a magazine or something like that. So that's, I've killed 93 gobblers, so that's... 387 deer and 93 gobblers. I got a story on every kill I ever made. Plus, I got a story on every shot I ever made. Plus, since 2002, I got a detailed account of every day I hunted, how many hours I hunted, how many bow hunts I've made, and uh, just it's just unbelievable. Warren, let me let me know when that book goes to print because I'll be the first one to buy a copy. Well, I've had a lot of people encourage me to do it. Number one was my wife, but. I did some videos. I, I made my own video, and and uh, it was '95. I come out with my first video. It, to my knowledge, it's the first video ever made 
that the cameraman and shooter was the same person. It was way before self filming ever even thought about. It. And I released that video in 1995, and uh, yeah. and it was called the Ultimate Challenge. I had ten kills on it. Half of them was with a recurve, and half of them was with a compound bow. So that was, and it did really good. I I sold a bunch of those things, and I produced I think six more after that that it was for sale too. But back to my journal level thing. I, I have I have just so much details on it. Like I said, I wish I'd have brought brought it over here because without it, I can't quote the numbers. It's just too vast. But uh. We got the and I got a video. I videoed my season, pretty much everything I did. And from that, starting in '91, I got a video camera, and started video and self video, and I got a season video for every season since 1991. And my first three or four seasons, I was really into it. And there's like three or four DVDs, 60 minute DVDs for each season, documenting all the kills, all the shots, all the misses, all the places. And everything I could think about to put on them, but it's just just a real deep. I know exactly how many bow hunts I made in my life, which is over two thousand. I can't quite count it. I've, I I just I should have brought that lock. I I, I, I didn't I didn't know what we was going to do. <laughs> it's okay. I, I I'm honestly the just for me, and I know I know I'm, I'm for you guys that are listening that don't know, we do a video version of this podcast so that we can see each other. And I'm watching Mike's expressions because it really is just ballparking the numbers. Um, it drives the point home of, you know, I, I'll say this, Mike. I've, I've heard this story, and I've been a, a privileged to go sit in Mr. Warren's office and look at some of these books and stuff. And I watched his videos before I was his neighbor uh, bits and pieces of them and stuff, and I was aware of, of the work that he had done in that regard. But even so, like, I almost feel, every time I hear you tell these stories, I think, I just feel disappointed in myself that I didn't do, <laughs> so, like, I think I think it's just such an, it's just so awesome. I know, I, I know that there's no there's no doubt that as much as you've enjoyed it, and as much as it's been a, a part of your hunting career, it it gets to do that level of details get tax gets gets taxing at times, right? Oh, does it? I mean, you have a life and you have a family, and but to stay committed to it, and and then to be able, you know, when things do slow down, to be able to look back at it and have it, mm-hmm. and and be able to say, you know, you know, that week I I hunted. And when I got home, I had so much to do and busy, but I still took the time to get all this documented so that I didn't miss. Like, it's just amazing, you know. And and uh, like I said, the ballpark numbers tell the story uh, anyway. And um, I'm I'm here to attest that you're not you're. I've seen the books. I've held them in my hands. He's not exaggerating any about uh, the level of detail and, and the numbers. I know how many times I hunted out of stand and didn't see a deer. I know how many times, I, how many morning hunts I've made, that's bow and gun, how many how many evening hunts I've made in a lifetime, how many uh, yeah. days I've hunted, it's just, it's, just, uh, it's really unbelievable. I, 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 I mystify myself there with the stuff. And I, I tell everybody, I say, you cannot, you're only limited by your imagination on what you can record. And it's a bunch of it, but I was real selfish about my hunt, and I, I would quit my job. Start. I started off working, leaving the job. I was. I worked construction out of a union hall, so I, you know, I, it, 
wasn't like I worked for one employer all the time. I different employers and different jobs and everything. But when the last Friday in September, I was done. I was ready to start hunting, and I, I forfeited probably a third of my annual salary by doing that. And uh, but I would like I like to make four day hunts. I'd go off. I sleep in my truck. I had my truck set up like a camper. Sleep in my truck. I had everything I needed in there, and and uh, I'd, I'd spend four days hunting. And you needed that to scout. Things change so much. You know, you got you got to be able to stay with the deer. And daily in season scouting was probably my best thing. Getting out there and walking two to four hours to find the the best primary place to hunt. The major place to hunt, it blows away anything else you looked at. I was looking for scouting with an open mind. Four days out of four days, I hunted daily in-season scouting every time. But I, I wish I would have brought my book over here. I, I just really neglected not bringing it. I, oh. I could deal with the, the details and the stats on it. It's. Uh... I, love to, I love to data mine that book. I mean, like I said, the, the data alone um, is is just – very compelling to me, frankly. I mean, I I think it's also mentioned that you 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 know wrote the stories of those hunts. I mean, I think that's super cool for your posterity. You know, your posterity to be able to open those journals and read some really you know some cool hunting stories. Mm-hmm. I love to read hunting stories, mm-hmm. especially those that happened back in what we consider the 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 good old days. I. You know, I haven't really kept a journal in, in regards to the times and, you know, the detail, you know, the minute details of, yeah. of hunts. But I have I have had a few of my hunting stories published and I, I try to keep a journal of some of the more um, entertaining or compelling hunts and stuff. Just so my, you know, my posterity, my kids will have that to read and kind of learn and know about an individual and a, and a hunter. So I think that's, I think that's super rich that you were able to um, take the time to, to, to do that. But one of these days, you know, it, uh, somebody's going to want to data mine that and extract all the extrapolate, all the awesome information in there. Cause that's, that's certainly um, uh, got a lot of value to it. Well, I share a lot of it. I share a lot of it on Instagram with pictures on a, on a memory from this day is what my theme is. It's a memory from this day, and I write down what I killed, have a picture of it, and uh, and the shot, how far the shot was, the specifics of each picture, you know. And I've got about a thousand of them on Instagram right now. Yeah, I um, there are you, you if if get. Normally we do this at some point, but like give everybody your Instagram handle so they can. Follow. Well, it's, it's real easy. Warren Womack. It's my name on my YouTube channel. I got about two hundred and fifty video clips on YouTube, which is the the quality leaves a lot to be desired. When I put them on there, most of them I had low speed internet, and it it take uh, two hours to upload a, a twenty minute. I've been mean a twenty second, thirty second video, yeah. and the quality had to stay real low on it and everything. But my uh, my Facebook deal is Warren Womack. My Instagram is Warren Womack, and uh, and, and so spell is your YouTube. last name, Warren. What, what spell w- your last name? W O M A C K. Yeah, I've had the pleasure to do a, a several podcasts too. But I'm up to about twenty five, I guess now. So it's it's for people who haven't followed it 
it's interesting to see your memories from this day is is always entertaining and insightful for me and but i'm curious you know how many times given now you mentioned it's always been important to you to be able to scout and 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 not just tree stand time but that time was always very important to, to how you hunted and your yeah. success how how many times have you used your documentation to help with with that process as well I mean, almost daily <laughs> you know my hunting style started changing in the early 2000s and everything age-wise my my wife if she needs me at home i quit hunting out of state and quit hunting public land i just hunt private close by land now i've dealt with some health issues which at my age has slowed me down a lot you know and then i've been doing this so long and so much you know it's kind of got got where I, i'm not into it as much as i was before but but uh, what was the question? I asked how many times, I mean, oh, because yeah. I know how important scouting is to you, but how yeah. many times have you been able to use all this documentation to complement your scouting? And Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, back in the old days, I would, what that, no matter what time of the year is, I'd go back and look at all the kills I made on that certain day. I got, I got on my documents, I got the year, the, the month, with how many days in a month, and I got each year I killed a, a deer on that day. Wrote down, so you know I might have six different kills on, say October the tenth. I'll go back and check all those kills from where I was at and the data on it, and uh, what what I was killing them on, oak trees or whatever. And I know where those trees are, and I go in there and check them and see if they're ready now. You know, but I found that most individual oak trees have a similar a similar drop time where they drop the acre at the same time every year. I'm a feed tree hunter mostly. That's my favorite way to hunt is hunt feed trees. So if I if I find find where I killed a tree on a tree, certain tree, well, I remember where that tree's at, and I'll go in and check it. And if, if it's got acorns, there's a good chance it's going to be dropping the same time every year at the same place. And then I, I can find a tree that's dropping on a certain elevation, and I can go on a topo map and check that same elevation in different areas. And uh, go in there and check those trees and find the same species of tree dropping at the same time in an area with the same elevations. So, you know, it's just all a bunch of... And you'd never have... I mean, that's just... Because you're so detailed, you've been able to... Yeah. Like like Mike said, data mine, all of that. Yeah, I got but it. But that's... I'm curious because I think this is a question that a lot of people, whitetail hunters, would would want to know from your you know, from a general observation from all of your documentation. When So you obviously, you know, you mentioned you don't just have this detailed journal entry of when you killed a deer. You have the same thing for when you didn't even see a deer to when you missed a deer to when you seen a deer but didn't take a shot. Or, you know, you have that for every instance. So how much pattern, now you mentioned about the oak trees and about the acorn dropping all that but as far as deer movement how much pattern have you found uh from year to year or even throughout a span of years like if you're let's just say you know you're planning to to make a three-day hunt october the 15th through the 18th how many times has your data from years past october 15th through the 18th um how much has it lined up or how much does does it change the deer movement part of it? You know, areas change, storms cause disruption in the, in the environment and habitat and everything. But 
It's pretty consistent. I, I like to hunt. What I coined is a flow area. It's a, it's not a trail. It's not a funnel. It's just a, a, a area that the deer are traveling through, and they're using elevation changes, thickness of the woods to hide themselves as they travel from point A to point B. And and it's a real distinct thing for them. I mean, you look through these open woods, and these woods look open, but you're going to have little dips and draws. You're going to have trees a little bit thicker. And those deer use that to travel, to go through to stay hidden. And once you find one, I mean, and you find it by observation stands, the best way to find it, just go out there and climb a tree and, and watch watch for movement and then hone in on that movement. If you can find a flow area, if they go, those deer are going to use that flow area year after year after year unless something unnatural causes it to change. You know, somebody go in there and log it or, or trees fall down or, or whatever. As long as it stays like it's advantageous to them, they're going to use it. I call them a flow area, and man, I have killed some deer. These does are traveling that flow area. Their fawns are following them. The fawns grow up. They have they have fawns, and then they they travel and they still use that area. To, and it's a lot of late morning and, and early afternoon hunting in there where they traveling around a little bit. Flow areas are really good, but that's not the only thing. I, I like to scout with an open mind, take advantage of anything outstanding for sign I find, you know. So. I think oak trees are my favorite way, but uh, I, I I'm not just focused on that. I'm focused for anything that shows yeah. me a, I have a chance to see a deer. Well, you know, Mike, just to kind of highlight the impact that Mr. Warren's information and data that he shared multiple times over with so many people. You, you meant when did you when did when would you say that you kind of coined the the term flow area and started identifying that in your in your probably in the 80s so yesterday yesterday mm-hmm. i saw a podcast pop up and the title was using flow areas to fool deer yeah. and that was recorded in the last month or so so that your own personal coin phrase people have started to use it because it makes a lot of sense and yeah. you you're able to you've been able to identify those kind of things because you know i think that you take someone with the same commitment and level of hunting experience that you've had over, you know, a long hunting career, and they don't take the time to really invest in it the way you have with the data and, and the journaling and the video content and all that. They're not able to really do that. They're not able to really drive home that point. Um, so I think that's I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting that you'd mention that because we had – you know, going into this podcast conversation, I had no, literally, Mr. Warren and I's uh, text message was about three or four different exchanges, and you said, what are we going to talk about? And I said, well, it's deer season. Let's talk about deer hunting. And that was it. You know, it's funny that, you know, I love the flow area thing. I think it's it's great. And for people listening to this that are whitetail deer hunters or, or guys out west that are looking to get into it, that's, I don't, Mike, is there is there anything that you can compare that to out west? Well, I, I mean, like I say, they, they uh, genetically, as I understand it, white-tailed deer, actually mule deer are, you know, mule deer and white-tail are, are related. I mean, I guess yeah. they're, they're genetic cousins. They're evo- yeah, they're evolutionary cousins in some way. Right, they're evolutionary cousins. You know, I, I believe that same thing, especially a big buck, and I agree with Warren wholeheartedly. I mean, these 
it's like it, it, here in in the west we have actual migrations right like deer deer have a summer range it's usually high on the mountain and then you know in in some cases man like here in utah southern utah where i'm at i mean our deer they'll migrate up to 20 miles in wyoming I mean, they have deer migrating in excess of 60, 70, 80 miles, you know, and those, those fawns follow their mothers from the winter range to the summer range and then back from the summer range to the winter range. And they, they, it's like ingrained in their genetic code. I don't know. I mean, they, they just, they just know. Um, and, you know, that, I think that's very similar to what Mr. Warren just explained about those those fawns, they, they recognize that, that mom kind of uses these flow corridors to, to keep them safe from, you know, predation from, from humans. Um, you know, I, I actually liked what Randy Ulmer said on a few podcasts ago about his, his theory about mountain lions. Now I don't, I don't know that you guys have, you guys even have mountain lions in your area. I've I've seen a couple. I think that they have historically had a range in the south. And so, especially, um, especially certain, I think, more hot areas where they were historically. And so they are, they are around, but I mean. In my lifetime, I've seen three. I I think people who have had the, uh, the, the pleasure of and, and, and blessing of being able to hunt as many areas and as long as Mr. Warren. Uh, I, I saw one in Arkansas when I was a kid. Um, so I think we have them. But anyway, to your point, Mike, right. we don't have them to the level of people having to account for them in the way that they scout and the way they hunt. We don't have them like that. Yeah, it, so when we're talking about, when we're talking about whitetails evading predation, I'd imagine we're primarily talking about um, coyotes, but, but, probably primarily hunters, right? I people. mean, we are, we, we, people, we hunters, we are the apex predator. And, and I, I, these, these animals, I mean, let's, let's be, let's be real here for, for a buck to survive, you know, whether it's a whitetail or a mule deer for them to survive four or five hunting seasons. And these, these animals get hunted for, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure on these animals and for them to be able to survive, to be a five or a six year old deer, to get to that age class where, you know, hopefully if they have the genetic makeup, they can grow a big set of antlers, man. They got to, you know, they got to learn to evade um, hunters and evade predation. And and to Mr. Warren's point, I think they just learn. They just learn, hey, if I'm nocturnal, if I use these flow areas, uh, I'm, I'm safe. When I you know, when I, when I get out of that, when, when I, when I get out of those areas, you know, that's when trouble happens. And I think that there might be a, uh, an exception to that rule. I, I would imagine once the rut kicks in and these deer get to be a little bit dumb, I don't know, for lack yeah, of a I better think that's, word. Well, that's anyway. always the sweet spot for everybody. Yeah, that, they, they, they probably, you know, throw caution into the wind and leave those flow yeah. areas. But no, I, I think mule deer, in fact, I think, to be honest, I think most ungulates um, use. I mean, it's it's a very common cadence for all ungulates to use areas to where that there's just not the pressure in there, right. and that that's a new that's a new term to me. Flow area, I love that term. Um, feed tree, I've never heard that, but oh. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and these are great terms. I'm 
I'm uh, I'm soaking it all up, Mr. Warren. I specialize in feed trees. That's been my favorite way. So here, so I I want to I asked this question of um, someone on um, the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast a couple weeks ago. We were talking about uh, tactics for preseason scouting on public land. Was the topic with a couple of guys who who you know that's really what they they hunt a lot of public land up in, right. up in North Louisiana and. We got to talking about feed trees, and we got to talking about travel routes to and from, and that conversation. Well, the question I asked them, I think that you can actually provide um, maybe a, a different angle to the answer is, obviously, whether it's private land and you have a food plot or, or a legal bait site, or it's private land with a feed tree, but when you find the hot spot that deer are coming to feed, it's a if you can get the wind right and the weather right, there's a predictability to that. But if you can find the flow area, I'm curious what your answer is. Is it easier to be successful specifically as a bow hunter? Hunting those flow areas and travel routes or hunting over the food source? Over the food source. Really? Yeah, the destination. Why is why why is that your why, what what experiences lead you to have that? They could come from different directions on a just a flow area or something like that. I know you can set up for it wind wise and everything, but it's I'm telling you, until you hunted feed trees the way myself and several other guys have done it, you can't imagine how productive it is. It's the absolute best way to put deer inside bow range. Okay, so let me. Okay, so I think this is where I'm. So I would have said the other. But I think you and I were looking at it differently. I was looking at it more from the shot execution standpoint. I think it's easier to shoot a traveling deer than to shoot a feeding deer. I disagree. You think? Oh, yeah. yeah. I just feel like in my experience, and, and don't get me wrong, I've hunted a, a, a hot feeding where a deer was just really, you know, but for the most part, especially most of the deer I've hunted my whole life have been in pressured areas. I I, I mean, I've... I've gotten to hunt some really nice properties as a as a guest and a visitor where the deer weren't pressured and they weren't quite as spooky. But generally speaking, I've hunted these hills and hollows and hardwoods and pine thickets of Louisiana and Mississippi my whole life. And when whether it's the primary feed tree or a food plot or whatever, a, a maiden doe specifically, not a maiden doe, I'm sorry, a mama doe, mm-hmm. a mature doe specifically, it's like... She'll kind of ease her way along, and she's always, uh, she's always cautious. But when she gets to the food, it's every other second. She's checking the wind. She's looking. She's looking. And it's like getting, getting drawn back and executing a shot has always seemed harder for me on, a, on that deer feeding than the deer that is comfortable in its flow area or on its primary trail, mm-hmm. and, and the wind is right, and it's, it's focused on checking the wind in the direction it's going, making sure that it's not walking into a bath or it's not being approached while its head's down feeding and it's just walking by. And that's all, that's what it's felt like to me. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts about that are. Well, you know, on corn, if you got set up with corn, they'll think they are real spooky coming in. It takes them a long time to settle down and they're even checking trees, mm-hmm. looking at trees. But on acorns, in my experience... They come in like a string. They're going right to it. They might do a little J-hook and come in on it, you know, come in to make yeah. yourself come in downwind. But they they uh, they come in just like on a string, that oak tree. 
It's just it's unbelievable. Do you think they just know that the difference between a natural and a? I think so. Yeah, they Se- just a lot of scent coming in there, putting the corn out and this that and other, and checking your cameras and this that and other. You know, it's just and it's not a natural food source where acorns are a natural food source. Persimmons a natural food source. Honey locust beans or crab apples. You know, it's mm-hmm. just any kind of primary food source. Primary, I always say primary uh, food source equal a high percentage of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's, it's very, I mean, I, I agree with you, especially I grew up spending a lot of time hunting in the Mississippi River bottom, and you and I both know that's where you find most persimmons right. along the swamps and the yeah. river bottoms. And when you find a hot, now I will say this about the feed tree thing. If you find a hot persimmon tree, they don't pay attention to anything but trying to eat as many persimmons as they can that have just, because I, I don't think y'all have persimmons out there, do you, Mike? What is a persimmon? I've heard that term. I've I've, I've heard the term persimmon. Okay. What, what what exactly is it? What's it like? A plum? A wild plum? It's a uh, it's a fruit. Yeah, it's a about about. I, I mean, the closest thing I can think to call it is a plum. Yeah. Uh, like a wild a plum. Fruit. Yeah. It's a fruit. Yeah. And like an apple, or orange, or uh, a, a crab apple—not a crab apple, but a—it's it's pretty sweet. I mean, well, no, know. not to us. They smell right. really sweet, and people cook like make persimmon bread and stuff like that with them. But as far as eating them, they're not as sweet and palatable right. as like a plum or a peach. But they're they're about the size of a, a small plum, about like a golf ball. Yeah, about like a golf ball, and. Okay. They're extremely nutritious, and they're they're like candy to a deer, and they're like candy to everything else too. When so a deer, when a deer comes in for that, they look like a vacuum cleaner. They don't ever quit moving. They just steady like this. Oak trees they'll feed around real slow and take their time and stand in one spot for a long time. But a persimmon tree, they're real greedy. They'll come into every. So Mike, you got to consider. Um, imagine a fruit stand, right? And you imagine. The uh, stray cats and dogs around that fruit stand, they only get what falls on the ground. So every time something falls on the ground, they come grab it quickly because something else is going to get it or it's going to rot quick. Well, that's how persimmon trees are when they start dropping. And everything's trying to get the persimmons that hit the ground. And so they really rush in. Uh, My experience, now you only have, depending on how big the tree is or how many trees are in a little area, you only got four or five days because the coons shake them all out of the tree when they start getting ripe. And down here, we have such a wild hog problem that the hogs will absolutely, they'll lay, they'll lay around the trees and just eat them as they fall. They make a very audible plop when they yeah. hit the ground, too, and the deer can hear that from very distant. But everything else can, too, and everything will eat them. <laughs> yeah. Coyotes, anything will eat them. Yeah. So are they very common? Are they, are they like, is it, is it rare to find one, or is it just kind of? spots they're kind of here and there or is there areas where they kind of will grow they tend to be in lowland areas more so like along the mississippi river basin or any river system delta but i mean you find them a little bit anywhere they stand out really they really is a spot see they're real dark and, and grainy looking bark on them nothing and they're usually what about 10 12 inches in diameter yeah they're not a real big tree but uh but they they love them they come in quick don't never stop moving, sucking them up quick as they can. So I, I'll tell you this: you asked that question, Mike. 
I've found and hunted around persimmon trees even up in like Kansas, but every one of them are like around those little farm ponds or watershed systems off these ags. So I don't, I'm not a, you know, I, I'm not proficient in herpetology or anything, but my in my experience, persimmon trees are always in wet areas around ponds and swamps. And, yeah. And I'll tell you like something that. else as good as a honey locust bean tree, too. Those, yeah. I found bucks just love those things. They'll, they'll walk through acorns and persimmons to get to a honey locust bean tree. Yeah, I remember if any of y'all listening to this, if you if you kind of watch and follow the different hunting shows and, and film series and stuff, Primos did, it's, it's back when I was like in college. So back in 99, 2000, 2001, one of their truths about whitetail deer hunting, they spent a considerable amount of time talking about and hunting video over honey locust trees. Mm-hmm. And the one thing about honey locust trees for whitetail deer, I, in my experience, I have never, per- I have found them where the deer eat them, but I've never found one where the deer was just coming to them, the way they would a white oak or a persimmon mm. or something. They've never seemed to be anywhere I've hunted to be the primary, but I remember that video that Primos did, and man, they were having a lot of success, and I've heard a lot of people like what you just said, how it seems to be regional. Some areas, they love honey locust bean trees, and then some areas, it seems like, well, they'll eat it, kind of like yeah. pecan. That's my experience with a pecan. A deer will eat a pecan, but they're not going to pass up other Starvation. Food. Starvation food, is that what you call it? Yeah. Well, but, but that honey locust bean tree, you know, they, they, it's, a, it's got a real long, probably three, four yeah. inch uh, needle sh- sharp uh, thorn on them. I mean, it'd be impossible to climb one of them. It's just unbelievable. But I've seen, I've seen bucks walk through prime acorns just to get to a honey locust bean tree. And the bean itself is anywhere from 10, 8 to 12 inches long. It's flat, it's got pods inside of it. And it's it's a uh, it's a real mm-hmm. sweet taste to them. They eat them like spaghetti. They'll grab them on the end and just suck them on in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting. I mean, they're very obvious because, like Mister Warren, they got the huge thorn and they got kind of a almost a tropical looking leaf right. to it, and then this big old bean pod that browns up and falls off. And then when they start falling, the ground will be littered with them like banana peels. Yeah, they got a little bitty fingernail sized leaf on it. So the ground underneath the one don't show much sign unless it's real wet. Like an oak tree that has big leaves, and the deer walk around, and they chop them leaves up as they feed around. And, the, and the, you can look at the drip line on a real good oak tree, and on inside the crown of it, it's going to be all disc up, and a lot of sign, have deer crap under it and everything. On the outside of that drip line, the area is undisturbed. It's like nothing's been there at all. But on, on those... Uh, Honey locust bean trees, the small leaf, it doesn't show any anywhere attached, so it, you don't see that the dominant uh, disturbance underneath it. So, well, and it, se- it seems like deer, I mean, they, they like what they like, and when they find something they really like, um, they're, they're ambitious. I, <clears throat> I remember years ago hunting mule deer down in Sonora, Mexico. And I mean, it's just, I mean, the Sonoran desert, every, you know, every plant is out to cut you or poke you or kill you. I mean, it's just <laughs> everything is sharp. And those daggum mule deer and even the whitetails down there, man, they actually eat choya cactus. And if you've ever seen a choya cactus, 
I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of a real succulent, you know, uh, plant. But if you can imagine those big honking sewing needles, I mean, it's just got those everywhere. And, and it's crazy because when you, when you kill one or you see one, I mean, they've got them stuck to the side of their mouth. They got them stuck to the bottom of their bellies, their rumps. I mean, it's just nuts, but they, they, they absolutely key in on those choya patches. And, and it, and it sounds like it's kind of the same principle here. I almost wonder, is there, you know, food plots are, are one, one thing that a lot of whitetail hunters focus on is our guys planting these, these persimmon, the, the honey locust. I mean, do they, I wouldn't imagine you want necessarily have any advantage of doing it out in a food plot, but maybe get back in, in, into an area where there might be a flow area and, and maybe plant one there. I mean, is there, is there guys that are so getting that ambitious? I'll say this, and then I, I'll let Mr. Warren comment. I, we actually are going to have a, a, a screen content where um, peace coming out real soon. I hope people will check out where I went over my process because I actually planted all my food plots here yesterday. We got some rain coming in tomorrow. Um, I planted mine yesterday too. Did you? <laughs> yeah. It's every everybody down here. We've been waiting on rain for like three or four weeks, mm-hmm. and I think everybody's been planting the last two or three days because we're supposed to get some rain Wednesday. But uh, I planted yesterday, and 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 we did a little piece that you'll see on the the Whitetail Strategies vlog series. But I think one thing to make note of, and and Mr. Warren um, can can comment on this. I the a lot of people plant food plots in the South, and I think a lot of people plant food plots because everybody's always planting food plots, and they do it because their daddy did it, and the hunting club they grew up hunting in did it, and they just do it. For me, I plant food plots for carrying capacity, and I don't hardly ever hunt them until the late season because when all of these acorns and persimmons and honey locusts and all this stuff gets more thin, you want to have a really good food source, not not necessarily as an attractive bait site to hunt over, even though we do hunt over them. You want to provide that nutrition for your deer. You keep them around. Keep them around your property. Keep them moving through your property. And to me, that's what food plots are about more so than anything because I don't care what you plant, and I think Mr. Warren will agree if you haven't uh, picked up on his strategy so far. I don't care what you plant. On the third or fourth week in October, I don't care what you plant and how good you plant it and how good it's growing from a food plot perspective. A good acorn tree is going to be better than that food plot. And they're going to eat that, and they're not going to come out in your food plot on a consistent pattern and feed over uh, a natural local food source that, that gets hot during that time of the year, year after year after year. Now, if you've got a small piece of property and you don't have a food source of note on it, maybe you do that. But the food plotting, you're right, Mike, and I think um, for me – I plant the food plots because when we get to the point where there's a lot less of this natural, you know, that I want, I want you, Mr. Mr. Warren, to define for people better when you use the term about the drip line and stuff like that. And I want you to define that for people. But, you know, those are all the indicators of how long is this food source going to be there? How hard are they hitting it? And at what point does it start to tail off and what do they transition to? Um, and stuff like that. And I think that's what the food plot stuff's about. Well, you talk about the, you want to talk about the trees or the food plot? For me, well, the food plot is just to keep deer in the area, have them something. Yeah, to that. There. Yeah, I mean, I want you. I want you to comment on that, but I, I want you to it, define uh, a little bit more. You were taught when you were talking about the honey locust. You, you you explained. 
you know, reading the drip line yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Just kind of go in a little bit more depth on what that means and how you can use that throughout the season to determine when the tree is or or the food source is at its hottest and when it's starting to tail yeah. off and you need to look and figure out what's what's next. Well, on a, on a feed trees, no matter if there's soft mass or hard mass, either one of them, I'm looking for the one the deer have selected as a primary feed tree for the whole area. Now, these deer, early in the season, the sign doesn't show up as much as it does later on. But early in the season, uh, you got to just hunt what sign you can find, basically. But about second or third weekend of October, they, they, they really start showing up good. They can start dropping good. And these deer, I, I, I kind of think of it like a person eating a tomato. You know, when the tomatoes first start coming in, they kind of green-like. Well, we'll eat anything we can get for a tomato. But once all the tomatoes come in and you got a bunch of them, the deer are real picky on what they're going to eat, and they're going to pick out the very best that they can find and eat it. Well, when they find this oak tree that the acorns are perfect, just like they want it, they're dropping it at a good rate. they got the nutrition that they want, the taste they want, and other thing. They'll designate that tree as the primary tree in their area, and they're going to spend most of their time there. When they, you say a tree is a destination, that particular tree is their destination that they're coming to. And what gives it away is the activity in the tree. You get a real prime tree that the acorns are perfect. You're going to have everything in the world that eats acorns coming to it. You're going to have blue jays up in there squawking, knocking acorns out, feeding on them. You're going to have coons climbing the tree, going up there getting acorns. Your squirrels are hitting it hard. And the acorns are just literally raining and hitting the ground. And when you hear that, you can, I found trees by listening to blue jays uh, 150 yards off, hearing them acorns dropping and squawking and everything. Go to that sign, and once you get there, you find a tree with all the activity in it. You're going to see the ground disturbed underneath the crown of the tree. This crown, this tree goes out different ways in different directions, and that's the drop zone under there. And I call it the drip line around that crown, however it's shaped, and that far as it extends from the trunk. All that activity is going to show up in that area where there's deer going around and around picking these acorns up. The, the leaves are going to be disturbed. They're going to be chopped up. You're going to see droppings on the ground. You could, you could see a rub, few rubs around in there where the bucks have been there and start rubbing a little bit. It's just a real hot tree screaming for you to hunt it. And it's a tree when you walk up, you can't walk away without coming back to it or either climbing while you're there. So I call it a... Go ahead. So I just had a question. I'm, I'm really intrigued by these, these feed trees. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to imagine like a, an apple orchard, right? You got this big orchard because there's, you know, there's obviously oak trees are abundant. They're everywhere. But you got this apple orchard and you got one or two apple trees in there that just have the sweetest fruit. Um, that are super productive. They have a lot of fruit. I mean, is that kind of, I mean, how common, I, I guess the, the question I have is how common are these feed trees? I mean, they're not, they're not obviously everywhere or it's, it's, if you're taking a deer, we talked earlier about a deer's core area, right? right. Well, I'd imagine within that core area, there's a few trees. I don't know how many, I mean, that, that, that actually have the, the, the sweetest uh, fruit in this case, acorns. Um, I mean, how common are these feed trees? They can be really hard to find. I've worked, that's why I like to walk two to four hours every day looking for the, the most primary feed tree I can find. 
but what you got to do, you got to recognize for the what, for what it is and set up on it right too. And deer down here, we don't have woodlots like they got in the, in the Midwest and everything. We got huge spanses of cut over and creek bottoms and small ridges and, and breaks and stuff like that. So the deer can bed anywhere. I mean, they can lay down and actually bed anywhere. So it's not like up Midwest where they got these predominant areas that all they do is bed in it, and then they got predominant feeding areas. And and uh, I, I lost track of where I was going there. But well, we're talking about the, how to identify and how many feed trees would be in an area, and I think you were kind of going at the direction of how yeah. that's hard to identify here because you don't have primary feed, primary right. bed. At, those two things can be in the same place, and they can be in multiple places in the same area. My, my best way to do it, I like to do it the best, was hit these these drainages and, and hit on one side of a drainage. You might be able to walk it up a mile or so, checking all the oak trees, just going from oak tree to oak tree. And, and uh, some oak trees, you get you get uh, a distance from it. You can see there's no activity there at all. Some of them you can hear stuff, the activity, and you can go to it and check it and, and, and judge it after you get there. Other trees, you just got to keep looking for them. I just like to say, and when I was younger, I would jog. And these creek bottoms going running from one tree to the other just fast as I could to cover as much ground as I could to see what it good. I might find four different trees that I think I could kill a deer on. Well, I'm there for a four-day hunt, so what I'm going to do, let's say this is the first morning I got there. I found four trees. I pick out what's the best for the wind and what I think the deer would be coming from and this, that, and the other, and the drop rate, the activity in it, what it looks like on the ground under the crown. And I'll pick that tree out and I'll hunt it that evening. And then if I kill on it, I see it, I'm done with it, I'm going to find another one. But if I, I don't kill on it, I might come back the next morning and hunt it for two hours and then get down and walk another two to four hours looking at new areas. And then I might find three more there. So then I got, like, say, six trees to choose from. And then I do the same thing day after day. So I'm trying to improve my chances by continually scouting. Now, you can't do this on small properties you got to have huge acres to do this, like national forest, wildlife management areas, and stuff like that, so you cover a lot of ground. I might hunt one area in the morning, and then at midday I might be five miles from there checking stuff, and then that evening I might be five miles from there. So, you know, it's just you got to have huge areas to do this. But just cover as much ground as you can, look at as many trees as you can, and, and hopefully you'll find what you're looking for. I would imagine once you identify what you, you feel like is a, is a solid feed tree, I mean, you could set up cameras and kind of see what's, you know, what, yeah. what kind of animals are hitting those trees. Yeah, uh, but I, I never use, the only thing, thing I use my cameras for is on like a food supply, like a corn or something in a particular uh, private area just to see, catalog the deer, see what I got there and, you know, what I'm looking for and see if it's, you know, something I might be interested in for us. Feed trees and other thing. I'm covering too much land. I'm finding too much stuff to hunt. To food, they will slow me down, really. Uh, yeah, well, cameras do. Trying to, you know, you get a, yeah. you get a, uh, I call it a trap line of cameras, man. I mean, just, just that can wore you ragged just checking all those different cameras. But you know, I, I think this is very intriguing. These, these feed trees. I mean, you, you might, you might wonder how this could compare to. I actually think the feed tree principle applies to almost every animal I've ever hunted. Um, you, 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 
so so a couple of years ago i actually went hunting grizzly bears in alaska and you, you might wonder how the heck a feed tree and grizzly bear hunting apply but actually that's what i got thinking of flown into the arctic and we were we were looking the the guide the pilot was kind of looking for you know areas that would hold a lot of bears well when the when the the rivers drop it forms these sloughs that trap these dog salmon and we're flying and all of a sudden he sees birds just like tons of birds in this slough area and he's like oh yeah right there man and he drops us down we land on this gravel bar by this slough well it's full of these dog salmon and they're trapped and they're they're gonna die anyway but it's easy pickings for the bear. I guess where I'm going with this, and by the way, there were tons of bears in this area, tons of them. Animals, they much like humans, we right. We all have our favorite meals. We like what we like, and we'll go. We'll go the distance, man. We'll drive clean across town to go to our favorite restaurant. And I, I mean, I honestly think it's. I've learned with mule deer, with elk, like if you that they like. And they really like it. Um, I mean, I've heard down here we have some lower land elk. And they, they they said what you guys said earlier about whitetail, you know, passing persimmon trees and food plots to, to get to those honeysuckles. I mean, it's the same. And I've heard farmers say that they'll they'll watch elk walk out in the evening and they'll they'll cross in a bunch of other, you know, sweet mix type fields to get to a field that's got, and I can't remember it's similar to alfalfa, but it's a lot sweeter. Um, so I, I think the principle is very solid, man, that, that, you know, whether you're hunting um, elk or mule deer or, or whitetail, in this case, we're talking about whitetail, man, they, they love what they love. And, and I think that's key. If you can find out what food source they're really hitting hard, I think it bodes well for for success. I think one of the things that I I would encourage people to listen to when they listen to the things that Mr. Warren said, I would encourage people to pay very close attention to one thing. And and you use this same example with your grizzly bear hunt. Understanding how to read nature to help you figure this out and not just simply walking with your head down looking for deer tracks and deer crap, but realizing that all of that bird activity And all this other activity in the woods around you can help you identify this because the whole, the whole ecosystem is in symmetry with one another. And I compare that to turkey hunting a lot of times. I, I don't really, uh, Mike, you've turkey hunted with me, with me some, and I know Mr. Warren has, uh, turkey hunted a lot in his life. And I've gotten now where most of my turkey hunting is, is I don't guide as like a, professional outfitter but i'm guiding people who haven't turkey hunted much most of the time i very rarely it's either i'm guiding my son or i'm guiding someone and there's so many times that people there's they're honed in on a turkey track or an audible sound for a turkey that's the only way they're trying to find a turkey during the day and i how many times i've told my son and people like you hear that crow over there Right there in the edge of that field that we expect there to be turkeys around, there's a really good chance that that crow's fussing at a turkey in that field right now. So before you go busting around that curve, how about we just sit back for a minute and listen, maybe make a call. Because all of nature's in symmetry. And I just found it really interesting when you were talking about how the Blue Jays, you know, 
you, you hear all this activity in this tree. Well, maybe I need to go check that tree. And then find so just and like you you're talking about the the bush pile at finding finding those areas with the grizzlies by the amount of activity from other animals that are keying in on on those sources and and realizing that uh everything benefits from uh something in an area becoming available to the wildlife the squirrels the coons the birds the predators, um, everything. And so uh, I just think that's a really cool thing that people should pay attention to because um, I do think that many cases people's scouting efforts are, are tunnel visioned, so to speak. All they're doing is looking for the animal or the footprint of the animal or some fresh sign from the animal, which really only tells you where the animal's been, not where it's at. You know, it's, it's common sense and woodsmanship. Yeah. Definitely. Well, uh, and I've always believed, you know, observation. Observation is your most powerful tool. I mean, you know, I, I hear a lot of guys, oh, I used to like to hunt, but it's just so boring, man. I just don't have the patience. And I'm like, man, you know, if, if you'll take that time where you're bored to observe nature, you know, and, 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 and you know, do like Mr. Warren has done and, and record those observations, Pretty soon you, you start to, as you review those observations, and in this case, you know, Mr. Warren has over a, a, a half a century of documented experience hunting in, in the, the whitetail woods and the turkey woods, and it's made him a better hunter. And like I said, man, it, observation, in, in my view, is an incredibly powerful tool, and you know, as a kid, I, my, my dad, he, he was a hunter, but he wasn't, you know, I think he liked to ride the horses and being out in the outdoors more than he actually liked to hunt. So we weren't, we weren't necessarily into tactics and things like that. That kind of came later in life for me. But I remember we used to go to the, we used to go up to the same canyon, the same ridge, the same ledges, and it was the same result every year, you know, which was, we, we usually didn't end up with a punch tag. And and, you know, I think as I, as I got more into hunting and, and recognized, hey, man, I, my observations and the experience, every time I step into the woods, um, there's something to learn. And, and if we can do that, I think we'll evolve as a hunter. And, and let's be honest, man. I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we hunt. There's a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I just love being in God's country and, and being in nature. That's, that's one of the reasons. But let's be honest. I think we all want to you know bring home the bacon we all want to punch our tag we all want to be successful and um and i found that as i've i've been uh been an observer and 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 take notes i don't to the extent that uh mr warren has but it's gonna make us a it's gonna make us a better hunter and 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 not only that man there's so much to learn from from people like Mr. Warren, that's been on this planet a lot longer than than I certainly have. Um, I think there's 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 much to learn, and nature can teach us so much about these you know these animals that uh, call this place home. Yep, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, one of the last things I wanted to kind of talk about on this is you were recently awarded a Hall of Fame uh, award. Here in Louisiana, right? That's right. 
So I want I don't know anything about that organization or that award. So I wanted first of all to congratulate you on it because I don't mm. even think I've seen you at church or anything since then. Yeah. But I wanted to, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about that organization and and what they're recognizing and 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 whatnot. Well, I didn't know anything about it either. Last year, about September or something or other, I was got a heads up on it. And what it is, they got a National Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame organization out of Tennessee, I think, out of Nashville. And Louisiana has is a is a charter off of it, and it has our own charter, the Louisiana Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame is what it is, of the National Legends Hall of Fame. And uh, I was uh, I was nominated for it by somebody I really had never met before, <laughs> and actually they asked him if he would accept it, and he recommended me instead, which I thought that was pretty kind. You know, he said he thought I deserved it more than he did it right now. So Leon Steely, I don't know if you know. I know uh, that name. Yeah, he's real active on Facebook from Livingston Parish. Okay. He's a big-time turkey hunter and deer hunter, great I re- guy. I recognize the name. Yeah, I'd never met him before. I knew who he was and everything. I guess he'd been following me for years and everything. But anyway, he told he told one of the members that was had to nominate somebody, that he recommended me. Well, anyway, they contacted me and talked to me and did some research and all that and of course, took me in with five other guys this year. It was the second induction of the Louisiana uh, chapter of the National Legends of the Outdoors Hall of Fame. That's, it's kind of tongue-tied yeah, <laughs> to well, say it that way. But I, I was real flattered by it and everything, and, and uh, I really appreciate it. They had a, a banquet up in near Alexander and uh, introduced the six inductees. And, and uh, you know, it was a really nice deal. I got a plaque out of the deal some recognition well that's that's really cool i didn't really know much about it but i knew you had been recognized for that and i i I think it's important because i hope that uh um people continue to hear some of the things that you've done i mean it's just it's it's really amazing that sometimes it all gets lost in the 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 grand scope of the internet and in the world of information is so big that sometimes uh it takes things like that to yeah. to keep things um, in the in the um, in the light where people can can continue to seek them out. And I guess in saying that and and kind of wrapping up on the episode, Mr. Warren has spent a considerable amount of time generously sharing what he's learned and his information on a number of different podcasts. You can find um, a lot of the things he's talking about he shares himself on like i said on uh, he said earlier on his instagram and on social media and you can find him on youtube to uh a lot of the clips from his hunts past and just search his name warren womack and you'll find out many things and find lots of different podcast episodes where i know i've done podcasts with you mr warren where we kind of deep dived even more so into this but um it's the, in my opinion, Mike, I know you have a little bit different opinion because you and I are from a different part, but this is the best time of the year. I know that you're, you're a big mule deer guy, but for me, middle of October and getting into no, November is the best time of the year because it's deer season and the weather's getting better. And uh, so I thought that this would be a great time to talk with you and get some of just – I wanted to tease people and get them to look you up and find out more because we haven't gone nearly even as in-depth as we could have on some of the things that you've 
shared with other people and that you've learned in your extensive hunting career. So, uh, but I love what we talked about. I think I think it's been a great conversation. Do you, is there anything else you want to ask, Mister Warren, Mike, before we wrap it up? No, man. I mean, it's it's you'd have to do a you'd have to do a, a one week podcast to cover fifty. What'd you say? Fifty six, fifty seven years of of journaling. Um, your say this you know i'm a um i'm i'm new to whitetail hunting um you know i killed my first whitetail last year i'm going on another whitetail hunt here in a few weeks um i gotta tell you i'm you know as a as someone that's grown up in the west hunted primarily mule deer that's kind of my kind of my my passion but i gotta tell you man that uh first first white when i when that first whitetail buck came in, man, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, man. My it got my blood pumping, and I'm kind of reminding me why I, I hunt, and it's something that I've I've come to really love. I really love to hunt whitetails now, and and uh, I I kind of feel like there's probably gonna be a whitetail hunt on my hunting schedule almost every year. So I would just say, you know, it, maybe a Reader's Digest answer would would suffice, but just what would your advice be to guys that are just getting into to whitetail hunting or some of these younger these young bucks that are just getting started what what would be your your advice to them well if they get a good mentor to help out a lot it'll be a shortcut but uh i i want it take it takes a while so don't no don't be impatient and uh, expect about a four-year apprenticeship to get it all together there's a whole lot to it it's not just like going out there and sitting down and hoping the deer comes by and you get a shot at him. It's much more than that. It's a lot to learn, and it takes time to do it. So don't expect too much too soon, but the the wait will be worthwhile if you if you hang in there and, and do it right and learn how to do it right. I think the kids these days are being given the wrong message. Their, their daddies want them to experience deer hunting because they love it so much, and, and they – they put them on a four-wheeler and they drive to the shooting house and climb up in the shooting house and wait for a deer to come out. When he does, they shoot him, load him up, and drive back to the camp. But the, deer, the kid's not learning anything about deer. He's not learning anything about the outdoors, how to navigate, everything it takes to, to be a woodsman. Uh, it's just they, they should experience small game hunting first, I think, up to a certain age before they start bow hunting. You learn a lot of small game hunting. You learn how to navigate, feel comfortable in the woods, Going in before daylight, coming out after dark—it's it's, a—it's a lot to it, and it takes a while. So be patient and don't expect too much soon. But it's worth the wait. I think right. that is an enjoy, awesome enjoy message. The journey. <laughs> yeah, that's an awesome message. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I saw something, and I I don't even know the person's name, so I don't feel like I'm stepping on anybody's toes because it was just random something that popped up on a social media feed, but. If somebody asking if anybody had a crossbow that they could borrow because their six-year-old was dying to go kill something. And I thought to myself, there's nothing wrong with that. If you hunt ethically and legally, it's not wrong. But is that six-year-old, what would be better? To take that six-year-old squirrel hunting and then let him sit in the deer stand with you and then go buy him a bow and start teaching him to shoot, or buy him his own crossbow and teach him to shoot it before you take him out there and let him kill something. Let him go squirrel hunting and learn that, like, you're right in that that six-year-old, there's so many things to learn other than sit right here and put the crosshairs of this 
crossbow on that on, on the shoulder of that deer, and they don't. The, the kid hasn't learned a thing other than how to kill something. That's it. You know, and that's that's a missing piece. I I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad you answered that question that way because I I love that answer. I think it's. I'll say this: I'm not tooting my own horn, and Mr. Warren was there that morning when we came out of the woods with that deer last year. But my and 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 I've mentioned it several times because I've killed a lot of deer, and and a lot of big bucks and and everything in between. And last October was one of my it, probably the best moment I've had because my son, who was thirteen, he was twelve at the time, about to turn thirteen. I can't tell you how many times he asked me to daddy. You know, went from the time he was five or six years old until he turned thirteen. Uh, in that age can daddy can we do this daddy can we do that and it was all him requesting a shortcut to a quick success and i never did it i said no you're gonna learn to shoot this bow you're gonna learn to shoot that 22 rifle until you're ready to shoot a bigger rifle to deer hunt with we're not gonna take the shortcut we're gonna learn and then at 12 years old he stood up and double-lunged a, a really nice Louisiana buck with a bow and arrow at 12 years old at 27 yards. That's awesome. And that deer that deer wasn't and, – and, and people that have bow hunted will understand what I'm about to say, and you can watch the video on the Scree YouTube channel. This wasn't a deer that was standing still, you know, under a feed tree or at a bait pile. This was a deer that was moving from bedding area – or from feed to bedding area in the morning, scooting through. We had to stop that deer. He had to do it all. And I've seen a lot of grown men implode in that situation. And he double-lunged him. He ran 50 yards and fell over dead. That only happened because since he was old enough to tag along with me in the woods, I've made him do it the right way. And fast forward, he's now four, going on 14 years old, and he missed a deer Saturday. He's going to miss deer. But he had he and I were able to have that experience. Because I was absolutely, everything that you just answered uh, Mike's question about, I have just been diligent. And my wife as well. She always said, no, you're not buying him that crossbow at five years old just so he can go kill something. He needs to learn to shoot. He needs to learn to shoot before he kills anything. Absolutely. You know, and and take, and that's not a diatribe against the use of crossbows. It's a diatribe against the idea of let's just get a crossbow because it's easy to let somebody kill something with. I don't. I don't have. And, and Lock, I, I, I think to your point and to Mr. Warren's point. I mean, you, you take a kid right out and he smokes a big old buck with his crossbow. That 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 young man or that young lady is most likely going to lose interest because the they're they're going to go back into the woods and that ain't get, that's not repeatable. It's hard, right? It's it's I an mean, instant gratification. It, yes, and and, and and these short guts are going to lead to to kids. I believe losing interest in the sport and losing you need that that slow steady evolution of being in the woods and i mean if you don't have stories multiple stories about the one that got away i mean um chances are you're probably not you're probably going to lose yeah interest you know i mean i know i know kids it's like yeah i you know and i'm not saying i mean there there's kids that kill a, a big buck their first year and that's there's nothing of that that evolution. I know I did with my dad, uh, tagging along. Um, I mean, back when I was a kid here in the West, you didn't hunt until you were 16. You did not hunt big game until you were 16. They've since lowered that age to 12. 
but I mean, I, I spent a lot of, lot of time with dad on hunts and a lot of those hunts were, were unsuccessful, but you know, it's, it's the whole journey. It's the whole experience. It's the stories around the campfire. It's the, you know, it's the story of, of uncles and grandpas and hunts that have gone by that, that, that really shape and, and mold these kids into our, our future hunters. And, and it's kind of fun. It seems like this, these, this podcast has kind of taken on this. We, it seems like we usually and or talk about the future of hunting and, and our kids because they are the future of hunting. But, but yeah, I think as, a, as, as parents, as adults, as mentors for that younger generation that we, we see to it, that they, um, that, that they evolve the right yeah. way. I you think know, it's they in, have the right kind of experiences that, that allow them to, to, to be passionate about the, the sport. So when you're, you know, you're in your late seventies, like Mr. Warren, you're, you're still as passionate about it as you were. I think, uh, I think it's just a valid point to, to wrap that, that up to say there's nothing wrong with the kid having good luck and no, being, being successful early no. on, but you got to make sure that all of this, that, that it's not just about that for them because they will burn out. If they don't appreciate and have a passion for the outdoors, not just going and shooting something with whatever method they're capable of shooting at their age. My oldest son killed his first deer at 12 years old with a bow, and he was on a solo hunt, basically. I dropped him off on a trail going to a bean field in early October, and I went about a quarter mile from him and set up. It was just getting right at dark in prime time, and I was expecting to shoot a deer, and I heard him say, Daddy! And he hollered like that every 10 seconds until I finally answered him, what? He said, I got one. <laughs> and so I went back and he killed his first deer with a bow at 12 years old. It's, it's awesome. I just, nothing uh, wrong with that. It's, it's, it's an awesome experience. And like I said, I don't want to rub somebody the wrong way about uh, use of method, uh, you know, with the crossbow. I, that's not what I mean. I just mean, let's teach the kids about the outdoors and, all these things that people like Mr. Warren, who've had a lifetime of awesome, dedicated uh, experience to share and are willing to share it, make sure you're sharing that with your kids and, and not just teaching them to go shoot and kill something. Because it's just like, I mean, I'm when I'm not doing this, I'm big involved in baseball and sports. And youth sports has that problem. We're buying the best uniforms, the best tournaments. The, be- the lights are so bright for these young kids in youth sports these days that when they get to high school or, 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 or beyond and they got to work for it, they don't know how because it's been given to not, – not to say that their coach didn't work them and practice them hard, but that it, it wasn't Little League. You know, the, the prize wasn't just a, a – a dip cone from Dairy Queen after the game. The prize is playing on a turf field with rings and all this stuff. And it's like, now you're in high school and the prize is just simply getting to be in the starting lineup. There's no more glitz and glamour and they're burnt out and they don't want to play anymore. And that's not what you want. And the same thing can be said for for unrealistic. We're we're building unrealistic expectations. Exactly. I mean, we, 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 we've evolved as a society and I won't, I won't derail too much, but we've evolved as a society where, Everything is instant, instant gratification, like everything, every aspect of our society. And, and that especially plays into the world. Um, you know, it's a conversation for another time. But, man, I, I, I think 
as hunters, we have a responsibility to, to kind of resurrect, if you will, the, the, the old way of hunting and, and kind of remind ourselves why we do it. What, what is it about hunting? And it isn't about, you know, the kill. And, and I think that's kind of tainted our, our reputation as hunters because people outside the hunting community think it's all of it's, it's a blood sport. It's all about the kill. It's all about the harvest. And man, that's, um, that's just not, not the truth. Yeah. And I, I think as hunters, we need to be better advocates and we need to kind of get back, you know, with the invention of social media and, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all enjoy that the pictures and all that kind of stuff. It's a platform to share our experiences, but it's kind of turned into a, also a, a celebrity hero sport. And, and, and it's just, it's nice. It's refreshing to get um, someone like Mr. Warren on the podcast who, who, um, you know, can, can take us back in, in time when things were a little bit more simpler and we, we, we didn't take things for granted. It was, I think really the, um, really the message in this podcast is, is to take time to enjoy and observe. And, and really the thing that I've learned is to record, to not only learn and observe nature, but to record that. And I, I, yeah. I think that's a valuable lesson. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a journal and I'm going to put uh, pen to paper and be, be more observant when I'm out yep. in the woods. Is there anything else you want to add, Mr. Warren? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I just appreciate having a chance to be on here with y'all. Well, we're, we're thankful to have you here and I'm, uh, you know, I, like I said, I we wanted to talk about whitetail deer hunting a little bit, and we're going to talk a lot more about whitetail deer hunting and more specifics on the podcast as the season goes on. But uh, I knew that you would share some of your own terminologies and some of your own stories that would spark interest with people, and I hope they'll seek out some of the other podcasts and things that you've done to find out more about some of the things that we really just scratched the surface of because there's a lot of cool information. I've seen a lot of changes since I first started back in the late 60s and everything, you know, a lot of innovation and a lot of good stuff to come in for hunters to improve their uh, chance for success and a lot of bad things that they really don't need have, have been offered to. So, yep. you know, it's just kind of, you don't really need that much. Keep it bare and basic and simple, you know, and you'd be yep. a lot better off. Yep. Well, it's been a great conversation. Mike, if you don't have anything else that you'd like to add, I'm going to start to wrap up here. And uh, want to encourage people, go uh, screegear.com is where you can go check out everything new that's going on at Scree and the Scree YouTube channel. You can see a lot of the hunts that we're talking about and different things. And I want to encourage you to go out and search Warren Womack. Do you say Womack or Womack? You say Womack. So search Warren Womack. That's W-O-M-A-C-K. And you'll be able to find lots of other podcast conversations where he's gone in much more in depth about his record keeping and feed trees and traditional archery and saddle hunting and a lot of the topics that you hear uh, Mr. Warren has uh, probably uh, an in-depth story about some of those. He's he's uh, been able to experience a lot of things and grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Nice meeting you, Mike. Yes, likewise. Thanks again for being our guest today. It's been very educational and very informative. Thank you so much again, Mr. Warren. Thank you, Mike. And uh, thank you all all for, for listening to the podcast. And we're still early on in this venture, but we're going to keep dropping these out every other Monday throughout the season. And, hey, I want to encourage you, if you have 
Uh, any questions, any things you'd like to hear us talk about, any specific guests that you'd like to try to get, uh, you'd like for us to try to get to come on the podcast, I encourage you to send me an email at lock at screegear. That's L-O-C-K-E at screegear, S-K-R-E-G-E-A-R.com. Um, we want to answer your questions, talk about the things that you want to hear, and if there, by all means, if there's guests that you'd love to hear on the podcast, send me an email or go out to uh, send us a message on the Scree Instagram or Scree uh, Facebook. I'll, I'll get those messages, and uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about uh, what, what you think about the podcast and where you'd like to see us take it. Um, again, it's, it's early on, but we're enjoying doing it and looking forward to doing more. We're going to talk more about uh, whitetail deer hunting and other things here in the very short future. But as it as it is, it's time to time to wrap this one up. And thank you so much for listening again. You've been listening to the Scree Country Podcast.